in my my impression of of this passage beginning with verse 31 it is an introduction to the remarks that Paul is going to make later on beginning in verse 21 and 22 which covers the marriage relationship but he starts out here um, in getting into the subject with verse 31 let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice now if there are ever any words that apply to the marriage relationship it is those because those of you here who have been married for any length of time know that the easiest person against which to express wrath and anger and clamor and just have a downright lousy attitude it's the one you love it's that gal or that guy that is living there with you and so Paul begins talking about the remarriage relationship in my opinion right here and then he goes on and gives the the positive aspect of it but on the other hand be kind to one another now that is not our nature as a husband or a wife we have to work at that we have to work at being kind one to another and we're going to talk about that a little later on tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you someone has said that really a successful marriage is comprised of two people who are very good forgivers and there's a lot of truth in that two people have who have learned to forgive one another in many different kinds of situations tender-hearted forgiving one another and then he goes on therefore be imitators of God now brother that's quite an assignment be imitators of God that's a lifetime project to work on and he says walk in love and there's just a few things that that he mentions down through this early part the first half of chapter 5 that I feel a a good marriage relationship is based upon and it is all on a spiritual level because the husband's walk with the Lord and the wife's walk with the Lord is the foundation upon which success and happiness in the marriage relationship is built now it's not the only thing but it's the foundation upon which it is built in their mutual walk with the Lord walk in love a spirit of thanksgiving in verse 4 but instead let there be thanksgiving in verse 7 walk as children of light in verse 15 look carefully then how you walk not as unwise men but as wise now apply that to your home situation being wise with your wife being wise with your husband and part of that wisdom comes from understanding them which is what Carol is going to talk about in just a few minutes verse 17 therefore do not be foolish but understanding what the will of the Lord is 
together determining God's will on issues that you face in the normal course of living together. And verse 20, always and for everything giving thanks. Now these are spiritual principles that Paul has thrown in here prior to his introduction of the marriage relationship. And then, of course, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then wives be subject to your husbands, and so forth and so on. We won't take the time to read that passage. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with it, but if you haven't read it recently, I would suggest that before tomorrow's session, the two of you together take the time to read through verses 21 to the end of the chapter carefully and uh, talk about it and discuss it together. Now, Carol is going to talk to us about the battle of the sexes this, this afternoon. But to introduce the subject, I'd like to read you just a little humorous anecdote called How to Tell a Man from a Woman. Now, I'm sure that both most of you are aware of how to do that. But uh, this is both humorous, and yet it's got some very pointed things in it that if you grasp and comprehend, it will help you overcome a great deal of misunderstanding between husband and wife. What is a man? A man is a creature of superlative intelligence who can understand the principle of jet propulsion and the Dow Jones averages. But he can't figure out how to fold a baby's diaper. He can't understand the rules for monopoly, and he can't grasp the basic theory of the hook and eye. A man has a remarkable retentive memory. He can recall the score of the Army-Navy game in 1948, the electoral votes the Republicans won in the last election, and the gas mileage of his first car. <laughs> but he can't remember what size socks he wears, the ages of his children, or the name of that old Richard Rogers number that his wife refers to as Our Song. <laughs> And what is a woman? A woman is a rattle brain who can't read a slide rule, can't follow a road map, and is vague about the make and model of the car she drives. But she can recall in vivid detail the yellow organdy dress she wore to her first high school prom. And she can mentally multiply 16 people by two and a half cheese canopies each while she's cooking beef stroganoff, ironing a blouse, and helping one child compose a letter to Santa Claus, and listening to another practice scales on the piano. <laughs> a man has an astounding manual dexterity. He can light a match with his fingernail. He can untangle a hopelessly snarled fishing line. He can repair a light cord, fix a carburetor, operate a power saw, and park a 17-foot car in a 16-foot parking space. <laughs> a woman can't do anything like that. But she can hang up a bath towel so that the monogram is right side out and precisely centered. She can unjam a stuck zipper. She can construct a pin curl and remove a sliver and balance a plate of food on her lap. 
a man is decisive. He can make an instantaneous decision about mergers and advertising campaigns, cutbacks in production and million-dollar bond issues. But he has to appeal to his wife, that little muddlehead who can't decide how much to tip a bellboy, to help him decide which necktie to wear with his blue suit and what to send his mother for her birthday. <laughs> Faced with a continental menu, he shrugs helplessly and asks, Honey, do I like beef bourguignon? A man is a stoic about thunderstorms, rattlesnakes, and spiders. He's fearless about guns and he and one-engine planes, and he'd give his eye teeth to be an astronaut. He has tremendous physical stamina and thinks it's great fun to spend all day in a cold duck blind. A woman is a weak, timorous creature who lies awake, hearing strange noises after reading a news bulletin that a psychopathic killer... <laughs> has escaped from a mental institution 1,500 miles away. <laughs> but she doesn't quail in terror from a new baby. She'll brave the rigors of an August white sail. And she has an adventurous attitude toward the unidentifiable hors d'oeuvres. When she doesn't feel well, she does a very courageous thing. She goes to a doctor. A man has quick reflexes and keenly developed eyesight and hearing. He can keep track of the ball at a football game. He can detect an engine knock that is inaudible to the feminine ear. How true, huh? but he can't hear a baby cry for its bottle in the middle of the night. <laughs> and he can't use the telephone if a child is banging two pot lids together in the next room. A man has great presence of mind in a crisis. He is a mountain of strength in a hurricane. He keeps his head when passing a truck at 60 miles an hour. He has a calm, philosophical attitude about permanents that turn out frizzy and ovens that go on the blink two hours before a dinner party. But he loses his head in a maternity ward, becomes a bundle of nerves during spring cleaning, and is inconsolable when his golf game goes sour. Men are practical, hard-headed realists, quite unlike women who are notoriously childlike when it comes to anything concerning money. With paper, pencil, and patent logic, a man can prove the folly of transferring a savings account from one bank to another in order to get a $3.95 set of steak knives absolutely free. <laughs> but a man has implicit faith in hot market tips. And he can use the same paper and pencil to prove that buying a new car is cheaper in the long run than getting two new tires for the old one. <laughs> a man has a sixth sense that enables him to find his way through the clover leaf, under the overpass, over the viaduct, across the bridge, and straight east to the airport without making a single wrong turn in ample time to meet the 1025 from Seattle. A woman has a sixth sense that prompts her to keep telling him, George, I have a, a funny feeling that we're headed the wrong way. 
But a woman can find the adhesive tape in the medicine cabinet, and she has an uncanny prophetic sense that tells her when to arrive at a dinner party. All in all, a man is absolutely indispensable. He's brilliant, resourceful, brave, strong, steady, and a rock to lean upon. But it it is his utter helplessness that is his greatest asset. Because it gives his wife, that little flutter brain who can't open a jar of pickles, the certain knowledge that she is indispensable. And he couldn't get along without her, and indeed he couldn't. Come to think of it, it isn't such a bad state of affairs after all. Now, tucked away in that little uh, article are some prominent differences between men and women and how they respond to the same situation. And so Carol is going to take about the next half hour and talk about the differences between a man and a woman and how that applies to us, particularly in a NAV situation. So, honey, come on up here. I want you all to meet the most wonderful girl in the world. And uh, can't hear? Well, I want you to hear this. Because she's not only my wife, she's my sweetheart, she's my buddy. Uh, She's probably the best counselor I have. And uh, in the last 23 years, we've come to love one another very much. So tell them, babe. One of my very favorite cartoonists is Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanut. And he had a classic of a, a cartoon not terribly long ago that had uh, just exactly the introduction that I needed for this. Peppermint Patty is walking along, and she's looking very gloomy, and she's saying, I don't know why I even think about him. Next to one, she's sitting under a tree, and she says, Chuck just doesn't seem to understand a girl's emotions. In fact, Chuck doesn't seem to understand girls at all. And this goes on, and she's starting to walk, and she says, Chuck is hard to talk to because he doesn't understand life. He doesn't understand laughing and crying. He doesn't understand love and silly talk and touching hands and things like that. He plays a lot of baseball, but I doubt if he even understands baseball. By this time, she's at Chuck's house, and she knocks on the door. And uh, Chuck sticks his head out, and she says, I don't think you understand anything, Chuck. (laughs) And then she walks away. And Charlie Brown is left standing there with this hopeless look on his face. And he says, I don't even understand what it is I don't understand. Well, I wonder how many times you husbands have thought just exactly that. And yet, as someone has beautifully said, when Adam was lonely, God created for him not ten friends, but one wife. And uh, I, I don't wonder that you men get confused. I read a, a little thing in the Reader's Digest, and I had to laugh at it. It said um, this. 
During the long drive home from a weekend camping expedition, my bride broke the weary silence by announcing flatly, I hope you're not going to ask me what I'm thinking about, because I don't know how I'm going to explain that I was thinking about what to say if you asked me what I was thinking about. (laughs) Well, it's no wonder you men get frustrated. But you know, I, I wonder how many times you wives have looked at your husband in the last month and thought, he's not listening. He's not really listening. I don't think he understands what I'm trying to say. Or maybe you haven't even said what you wanted to say because you didn't think he would understand. Well, I've been married for a long time to a very wonderful man, and he's still full of surprises. And that's part of the delight of just being married and growing together. Proverbs 24.3 says, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And as Jack quoted in Ephesians, in the Phillips translation of Ephesians 4.32, it says, Be kind to one another. Be understanding. Be as ready to forgive others as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And that key word in there is be understanding. One man said, A long life is barely enough for a man and a woman to understand each other. And to be understood is to love. The man who understands one woman is qualified to understand pretty well everything. (laughs) And the reverse is true. (laughs) But this kind of relationship takes a lot of work. It takes a great deal of prayer. And it takes a great deal of communication. Now, a great many of you have, um, have heard about some of the differences between men and women. But I think most of us, and and Jack and I are perhaps just beginning to see the implications of some of these basic differences. You know, when we get married, we, um, we face a lot of differences. Paul Pompano, who is the noted marriage counselor, says that probably the greatest problem in marriage today is a lack of understanding of the differences between men and women. But not only are there these differences to uh, think about, but also, of course, our temperament types. In a little book called uh, Tim LaHaye's How to Be Happy Though Married, he talks about the different temperament types and about uh, the fact that He has never seen a marriage in which two similar temperament types got married. They're simply not attracted to one another. And that's beautiful because God made us to complement each other rather than to be just alike and have the same strengths and, and the same weaknesses. So we have that. And then we have the extrovert introvert differences. So we have all of these things that we need to really give some thought to and some, some, some consideration. And, uh, and as I said, much prayer because it's God that made us and he can give us the understanding. 
I'm sure if I had studied this long before I did, and Jack and I had studied it together, I would have saved myself buckets of tears. Buckets of tears, literally. And probably, Jack, much, much frustration. And as I said, we're still learning. We, um, we haven't got it made, and, uh, and yet God has given us such a tremendous relationship that it's just a joy to share some of the things that God has shown us through the years. You see, God gave us two eyes to see things from a slightly different point of view. If we only have one eye, we see things flat. We lose all dimension. And with the two eyes, we see things in perspective. We see things in the round. And that is why I feel God made man and woman to see things from a slightly different point of view so that you will see the dimension in things. Now, to prove that men and women are different is not hard. We could prove it in a hundred different ways. You've all heard the, uh, the little illustration, I'm sure, that if a couple comes over to dinner and the man of the couple says, uh, where did you get this meat? Why, the man probably will say, at the AMP, and the woman will say, why? What's wrong with it? Well, that's one of the basic differences. A man is very objective. You've heard that. And a woman is subjective. Now, because of a man's objectivity, he sees sees things more realistically than we do, probably. He sees the bigger picture. He sees to the future. You've heard George say this. And because woman is subjective, she, um, she does take things personally. We always, now I, I shouldn't use the word always, um, and of course I'm talking in uh, broad terms. You may find exceptions in your marriage to these things. I'm sure you will. But this is generally speaking. Because we're subjective as women, we feel more. We do take things more personally. We think in detail. Um, and this leads to some very interesting situations because we think in detail. You wives have had many occasions when you have started to tell your husband something and you have gone on and on and then you remembered that you hadn't told him about this detail and so you start to tell him about that and all of a sudden you look at him and his eyes are sort of glazed. (laughs) And you realize that... um, Something's wrong somewhere. And your immediate reaction is, he's not interested. And if you think that, your thought pattern goes this way, he's not interested. That means he's not really interested in what I'm interested in. That means he really doesn't love me as much as I want him to love me. Usually boils down to that, man. Let me tell you that. Because we do take everything personally, even though we don't think that process of thought um, out in our own minds, it usually boils down to the fact that we, we want a reassurance of your love. 
But because we think in detail, we both have to work at this. I remember one time Lynn and I, Lynn's my daughter, my 18-year-old daughter, 19-year-old now, we spent 15 minutes talking about all the details of where we would pin a corsage on a dress that neither one of us had nor intended to get. Now this was a very interesting conversation about <laughs> But after we had talked about this a while, I started to chuckle and then said, what, uh, what you really laughing at? And I said, I was just thinking of what your father <laughs> would think if he were sitting here listening to this conversation. And she says, yeah, he'd be climbing a wall right now, wouldn't he? And I said, yeah, that's right. Very hard for men to think in details. And I, I think of one couple that um, came uh, and wanted me to go look at a house with them and uh, that they were buying and so I had the privilege of going out and looking at this house and as we came back uh, my, our secretary said oh, what was the house like? So I proceeded to tell her what the house was like and how the, the wallpaper matched the blinds and, and all of these little things that were, so, were really so great about this house and the fella who was buying the house looked at me as though I were describing a perfectly strange place and he said, uh, uh, was that the house that we just looked at? And I said, yeah, that was the house we just looked at. He says, I never saw one of those things. Well, that's right. Damn, it was a nice house. Well, let's buy it. <laughs> but because we women don't understand that, we take this, this, the fact that you are not as interested in details as we are or not even uh, looking at details the way we are has a lack of real interest in us. Now this is why we need to understand one another. You need to understand that about us. And we need to understand the fact that it's very difficult for you to think in details. And therefore when you come home from a conference and we say, what happened? And you tell us all about it in ten minutes. <laughs> We need to understand that, that that's you. It's very hard for you to tell us all the little details. And, uh, and yet you need to work at the fact of maybe writing out some of those little details that we're so interested in. Well, a woman thinks in detail. And because a man doesn't think in detail, he's more irritable, excitable, and impatient about the little things. It really is true in the thing that Jack read that a man has a hard time concentrating on the telephone when a child is banging two pot lids together in the next room. Now that can irritate your wife like crazy because she doesn't have that trouble. She can be talking on the telephone when she's stirring the soup and, and um, doing half a dozen things. doesn't bother her. So she thinks, how come it bothers you? And yet it does. Well... Because he's not detail-minded, sometimes he isn't as observant as we would like him to be. Now, Jack is wonderful about this, and he's really worked on it. And when I come home from the beauty parlor, he never fails but to tell me if I look good. <laughs> he doesn't lie if I don't. But, <laughs> but he's very observant, and he works at it. But uh, I know it has taken work with him 
and I appreciate this. But when he doesn't observe details, then I've got to be understanding too. So it's a two-way street. Now man is logical. He's more thing-centered. He's, he uses his reason probably better than women. Woman is more emotional, more people-centered. I've had a lot of wives tell me that their husbands don't seem to be interested in the people that they're meeting with and all the little details of the lives of the people they're in contact with. Well, that's one reason. They do think in concepts and they need to. But you see, fellas, please don't accuse us of being too sensitive. We need to be sensitive. We need to be sensitive to our children's little hurts. We need to be sensitive to people when you're not and maybe help you be sensitive to those very people. And that's the way we work together. You see, someone has once said that uh, a woman's intuition is not really intuition at all. I mean, not just a feeling. But it's her ability to go into a situation and see 20 little details that you missed, you men missed. We'll see a raised eyebrow. We'll hear a tone of voice. Um, a gesture. And all these little details filter into our computer of our mind and it comes out intuition, what you call intuition. Now we may not be able to verbalize all those little things we picked up, but 95% of the time we're right. Really. <laughs> and that kind of thing. Now Jack uses me this way, and I appreciate it. We'll go into a situation now. He sees the big picture. I don't. You know, I don't see the strategy and, and all the things that they've talked about. But then he'll say, how did you feel about that situation? And I'll tell him. Now, I appreciate his objectivity to filter through my subjectivity. And because sometimes maybe I'm just in a bad mood. And so, uh, and my intuition is wrong. And I appreciate his objectivity in being able to discern that. But uh, because of my ability to pick up details sometimes, uh, this can, we can work together this way. And this adds dimension in our lives. And a lot of men you know, kid about their wives and, oh, she had this, this female intuition. And they laugh at it. And they don't use it. And that's wrong. It has been said that a man identifies with his ministry and his life work. That is an extension of his personality. A woman identifies with her home, and her home becomes an extension of her personality. That's why, husbands, we wives get so upset when you neglect things around the home because we feel a personal rejection. Now, we've got to realize that you don't 
you don't think about the home as being an extension of us. And so you don't feel that you are personally rejecting us. But way down deep, that's the way we feel. And we take it, even though we, we may not even be able to verbalize it, we take it as a personal rejection. Now, as I said, this, again, takes mutual understanding, and I've got to realize that when the faucet needs fixing and Jack doesn't have time to fix it, that he really isn't rejecting me. But he works with this, too. And, but the other side of that coin, is wives, is that sometimes when your husbands ask you to do something in their ministry, and you think it's 20 down on your priority list, see, it's not. Because they identify many times with their ministry and their work with themselves. And so they can feel a personal rejection as you uh, decide that you don't have time to do that. So we need understanding. A man uses speech primarily to convey facts. A woman uses speech primarily to convey feeling. And oh, men and women, this is an important one. Because this has to do with our total communication. Now let me show you how that works. It's raining outside. And uh, I look outside and I say, it's raining outside. Now what I am really saying could be several things. I could be saying, oh, it's raining outside. That makes me feel very depressed. Or I could be saying, it's raining outside. That makes me feel very energetic. I want a clean house. But it's usually accompanied with the fact that it's making me feel a certain way. Jack looks outside and he says, it's raining outside. That means the clouds have parted and the raindrops are falling down and hitting the ground. Conveying a fact. Well, <laughs> you laugh, but this is very important. <laughs> There's a gorgeous moon. And you say, oh, isn't that a gorgeous moon? Well, now, if you have husbands, don't know what that means by this time. <laughs> You've had it. <laughs> well, of course, that means, oh, that makes me feel so romantic. Your husband looks at the moon and he says, yes, it's light enough to shoot a golf ball by. <laughs> Conveying a fact. Jack did say that, but it was in jest. <laughs> you back the car out of the garage, and you turn too sharply to avoid another car, and you carried away a piece of the garage. And you come in and you say, oh, honey, I feel just terrible. You have no idea what it did to me inside when I backed the car and there was this terrible crunch. And your husband says, don't worry about that. Just tell me what happened. Well, he is interested in the facts. 
you are interested in conveying how you felt about that situation. You get very upset about this because he isn't understanding how you felt about this situation. But he can't help that because he is interested in the facts. Now this has all sorts of uh, interesting implications. I don't know how many times wives have been crushed because they thought their husbands didn't like their new dress, for instance. You see, because we're so subjective, I have to look at uh, a girl, Betty down here, and she says, how do you like my blouse? Now, if I said to Betty, I like it, Betty will think she hates it. (laughs) And she'd probably be right. See, I have to convey an emotion. And I have to say to Betty, Oh, Betty, that blouse is just gorgeous on you. You know, I love the color. And on and on. Before she's really convinced that I really like her blouse. So she says to her husband, How do you like my blouse? And he says, I like it. And she thinks, he hates it. (laughs) Well, this has happened. (laughs) I'm sure it's happened to many of you. In fact, I was talking to one wife overseas as a new bride, and she brought a dress home. And she says, how do you like this dress? And he said, I like it. So she took it back. And... um, and she brought a second one, and she brought it home, and she said, well, how do you like this one? And he says, well, it's all right, but I like the first one better. How come you didn't keep it? Well, she was crushed. Now, if this is a woman's problem, but it's also, we need you to understand us in this. We need to work at this. We want women. We need to know that what you say, you mean. And I'm finally learning that when Jack says, I like it, he means he likes it. And I don't have to think, now does he really? Am I sure? But I can think, yes, he really does like it. And I need to be content with that. On the other hand, he works at really conveying to me And I'm trying to learn to communicate, and that's another subject for tomorrow, and the fact that if I don't really understand what he's trying to say, to ask it right then and there, instead of building up walls in my mind. Now, there are many interesting differences that we could go into just on uh, physical funny things (laughs) that, that are... Well, let me say this. What I'm really trying to get you to do is to do some research on this topic. We can only just skim the surface this afternoon. But we prepare for a great many things in college that we never use, and most of us never prepare for this beautiful thing that we're going to spend the rest of our lives doing. We don't work at understanding. We don't read. We rarely pray about really understanding each other. And so wives get irritated many times because um, 
their husbands don't sit still when they're talking to them. Or their husbands start to squirm in a meeting. You know there's a reason for that? Did you know that the center of gravity in a woman is in her hip area? And the center of gravity with a man is in his chest area? And it really is the truth that women can sit comfortably longer than a man. And yet you wives have probably been irritated with your husbands just from that silly little thing. We need to understand and we need to work at it. And by the way, let me encourage you on one other little physical difference. Because females, there is a difference in fat distribution in men and women. I want you men to know that. <laughs> a female has fat over the tissues of her body, throughout her body. She um, burns energy more conservatively because of this. She probably can last longer in a storm, freezing storm, than you can, probably to protect her baby. But because of that, she really does lose weight harder than you do. (laughs) Well, how does this relate to the navigators? You know, I've seen girls absolutely crushed at training programs because men thought they could correct girls exactly the way they can correct fellows. Not realizing that girls do take everything personally. Not realizing that they will read into things that you say to them and build them up. You see, a fellow can say to 20 fellows and girls, you know, some people ask very obvious questions. And nine out of those 10 girls that are sitting there will think he's talking about me. Nine out of the 10 fellows will think, Oh, yeah, I know somebody like that. (laughs) So you don't have to hit girls in the same way that you hit fellas. You you really do need to be much more gentle, and that isn't because um, you, you don't want them to get the picture. They will get the picture much more easily than a man. Now, I have seen a few girls that you had to sit right down and say, look. But rare. Rare is a girl that won't pick it up uh, from a suggestion rather than clobbered over the head. When a girl comes into a fellow's area as a single girl, and this also applies to wives, but a, a fellow has to realize that a girl is going to take more time. A girl is going to take more time. Because a girl has to be listened to somewhat in detail. She simply cannot express herself otherwise. And it will take me ten minutes <laughs> to say what Jack can say in one. Now, I work at this, but it is a case. And I simply can't help it. And so 
you have to listen to find out what I really want to say. And because of that, fellas need, all of you men, need to learn what it really means to listen to girls as well as to your wives. And the other side of that coin is wives not expecting their husbands to give them the details of all the trips and conferences. It also um, has to do with the fact that uh, that women do need to train other women. Husbands can train wives, yes. But a husband uh, can sit with another man and uh, spend four hours talking about the quiet time and really thinking through on it and strategizing about it and planning about quiet times. Then they can come home and they can summarize that four hours and tell their wives in ten minutes all about the quiet time. And they think, oh, I got her trained in the quiet time. But see, the fact of the case is she needs more details, not less. And she needs to have someone sit down with her and uh, and, uh, explain all the details. And that's why husbands can train wives, yes. And I've appreciated so much the help that Jack has given me in many, many things, in training. But she also needs another woman to really go into some of these details of these things. Well, this takes work, and I'm going to close with just a a little incident that happened to uh, Mrs. Peel, Mrs. Norman Vincent Peel. She was asked one time to sit in a classroom in an Eastern University and talk on marriage. And this is what happened. The young woman who stood up at the back of the room was a college senior, dark-haired, handsome, sophisticated, a little scornful. Mrs. Peel, she said, a moment ago when someone asked you what you considered the greatest career for a woman, you said marriage, right? Well, let's be honest, shall we? It's my opinion, and the opinion I'd say of most of my friends, that marriage as an institution is obsolete. We no longer believe that it's possible or even desirable to link yourself sexually to one partner in your early 20s and limit yourself to that person for the rest of your life. In fact, we think it's ridiculous. Take me for an example. There's a boy I'm fond of. We sleep together quite often. I don't think he wants to marry me, and I certainly have no intention of marrying him. He's not my first lover, and I'm sure he won't be the last. But what's wrong with this? Perhaps someday I'll decide I want children, in which case the pressures of society will probably make marriage seem advisable. But until then, I want no part of it. And even then, I don't intend to be trapped if it goes badly. We're not blind, Mrs. Peel. We look around and we see what marriage does to people and we don't like what we see. I think when I say these things, I'm speaking for a large part of my generation. Do you have an answer? All the bright young faces swung in my direction and I took a deep breath. How would you like to have been her? (laughs) It was true. I had said that in my opinion, marriage was the greatest career a woman could have. I had agreed that a woman might have other stimulating and important jobs, but none was so difficult and demanding, so exciting and potentially rewarding 
as the job of living with a man, studying him, supporting him, liberating his strengths, compensating for his weaknesses, making his whole mechanism soar and sing the way it was designed to do. I think that's a beautiful thing for a wife. I had said this because I believed it completely, but I hadn't expected a challenge quite so blunt and harsh as this one. Modern marriage, this handsome young woman was saying, was a fraud and a mockery, and she wanted to know if I had an answer. But I hadn't expected a challenge quite so blunt and harsh as this one. Modern marriage, this handsome young woman was saying, was a fraud and a mockery, and she wanted to know if I had an answer. Yes, I said to her quietly, I have an answer, because I'm in the process of living it. I consider myself one of the most fortunate women alive. Why? Because I am totally married to a man in every sense of the word, physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. We're so close that you couldn't put a knife blade between us. I need him and depend on him completely. He completely needs and depends on me. We're not two lonely, competing individuals. We're one integrated, mutually responsive, mutually supportive organism. And this is such a marvelous and joyous thing that nothing else in life can even approach it. It's the greatest of all adventures. But you'll never know it. You'll never even come within shouting distance of it. If you maintain the attitudes and the code of conduct, you've adopted. I don't see why not, she said. But her voice had lost some of its conviction. Why can't a man-woman relationship be just as meaningful outside of marriage as in it? Because, I told her, it doesn't have the key ingredients. It doesn't have the commitment. It doesn't have the permanence. It can never achieve the depth that comes from total sharing, from working together toward common goals year after year, from knowing that you're playing the game for keeps. Do you think my husband and I have achieved the relationship we have just by thinking happy thoughts or waving a wand? Don't be absurd. We fought for this relationship. We hammered it out on the anvil of joy and sorrow, of pain and problems, yes, at times of discouragement and disagreement. But we never thought of marriage as a trap. We thought of it as a privilege, and there's quite a difference. And I think Jack and I could say amen to that. The Lord has given us that kind of relationship. But we fought for it. We prayed for it. And it hasn't, it's come through on the anvil of joy and sorrow and peace and pain and disappointment and discouragement and disagreement. But it's worth it. So keep working. Make me want to weep, babe. <laughs> I think we're going the wrong way. Does it matter? Well, no, not really.
let me make just uh, two or three comments on things that Carol touched on, and then we're gonna. I'm going to ask you a question that I'd like to have you take uh, just a few minutes to discuss between yourselves as husband and wife. Uh, Carol mentioned temperament type differences, and uh, this is something that you ought to become f familiar with, and I would recommend that you get Tim LaHaye's books on it. He's written three of them now, all dealing with this, and, uh, and discuss them, read them and discuss them together. But um, one time I was, uh, we had a young couple visiting us. I was sitting in the living room just uh, talking with him. The girls had gone somewhere. And he said, uh, let me ask you a question, Jack. He says, I noticed that there's quite a bit of similarity between my wife and your wife and you and me. Uh, your wife is very outgoing, effervescent, talkative, etc., etc., bubbly. And uh, whereas you are more conservative, quiet, uh, and uh, reserved. And this is the way we are. And then he asks this question. He says, how do you handle that problem? I said, what problem? And then I, we went on to talk about it, the fact that Carol and I have, have different temperaments. But we use that as an asset. I look upon that in Carol as an asset, and I use it tremendously in our relationship together and especially in our relationship with other people. I hate small talk. If there's anything that bugs me, it's to sit around with a group of people who are yakking about nothing in general. But Carol is, she's a pro at that. And she knows that I hate it, and so she covers for me. She'll pick up the ball and she'll sit there and enter into that conversation just as though she didn't have anything else in the world to do and I'll sit there and I'll have a smile on my face with a little bit of glaze in my eyes and I'll be a thousand miles away thinking about something else. But that's no problem, brother. That's an asset. And she's a tremendous compliment to me in that kind of... because she is that way. Now, it isn't that, you know, she loves small talk any more than I do, but she's good at it. That's the point. And so as we discussed this, this guy began to see, ah, oh, yeah, I've got, I don't have a problem here, I've got an asset. Well, I think we need to recognize this in one another and begin to capitalize on that in each other as an asset rather than looking upon it as a problem. Another thing Carol mentioned in passing is using your wife as a counselor. And I mentioned when I introduced her, she's the best counselor I have. And she can walk away from a situation, and I'll ask her that question she mentioned, how do you feel about that, honey? And she'll give me insights that I totally missed. Now, guys, don't let that be a threat to you. She's, she's, she's in the ballpark on the 95% being right. Ballpark, you know, rough. <laughs> but... Uh,
But don't let that be a threat to you for this reason. Good decisions on your part and on my part are made on the basis of good information and much information. And the more information we have and the, and the, the more good information the ha- we have, the better off, the better we are able to make good decisions. And so as Carol mentioned, I listen to her, but I also filter through what she says, just as I would filter through information that I got from another source. And she is not offended by that. She's happy to have a part in it. And we work together as a team in that respect. So there's another asset in your wife as a counselor. Don't overlook it or neglect it. Another thing she said that reminded me of this, but I can't put my finger on what she said that reminded me of it now. But anyway, there are certain things that are repetitive in your relationship with each other that that can be potential problem areas because they come up again and again and again. Oh, I know, she was talking about when you get home from a trip, you know, and or get home and you want to know all the details, and so he summarizes a four-hour conversation in ten minutes. Well, I get home from a trip, and when I'm gone for a week or two on a trip, and I walk in that front door, there's only one thing that I want to do. Collapse. I don't want to talk. I don't want to listen. I don't want to entertain anybody. I want to go down and hibernate for about 24 hours in my bedroom and watch a little TV and read the paper and get caught up and sleep and to eat. So Carol and I have a little deal that when I get home from a trip, I don't talk. I mean, I don't talk about the trip. I don't, I, if I don't feel like talking about the trip and filling her in on what happened, I don't have to that night. <laughs> I've got 24 hours. (laughs) But I know and she knows that within 24 hours I'll I'll be back in the saddle mentally and and have a good night's sleep under my belt in my own bed and and, uh, then the next day we'll sit down and we'll talk about it. But we've got that little arrangement. So when I get home from a trip and I don't feel like talking, she's not hurt. And I don't have to feel under the pressure of thinking, you know, all the way home on the plane, when I get there and the minute I hit O'Hare and she picks me up in the car, then i got to start dumping the truck. See, I'm, I'm relieved from that pressure. Now, there are times when I, you know, I'm very bubbly and I get off that plane and, man, I'm... And she appreciates that, but it's rare. So... Uh, but see, it's one of those situations that repeats itself over and over again, and so we've just kind of worked out a little deal on it. And I'm sure you've got the same kind of things that, that you can think of. Well, what you need to do is sit down and talk about it and say, all right, what are we going to do about this when it happens again and again and again? All right, and here's what we want you to do. We want you to take just a few minutes, maybe ten at the most, and address yourself eyeball to eyeball as husband and wife, to this, in a practical way, what has come to your mind in the last half hour or so that helps me understand you better? Now, Carol has been talking about the differences between husband and wife. All right, now think for just a second or two about, in fact, you probably already have. You, 
you, you laughed enough at some of the things you said that I could tell you were identifying with some of them. All right, in a practical way, what has come to your mind in the last half hour that helps you or helps me as a husband or me as a wife understand you better? And if you can, think of an illustration so that it can be applied, we'll do that. All right, now just think about it a minute and then kind of start talking about it. Maybe you've already thought of something. Okay? Okay, let's uh, call it quits for now. I know you probably haven't had enough time and you've probably gotten into something, but I'd, we've gotten you started. Keep talking about it later. And at the end of the session, before you leave, we've got a couple of handouts, one of which is a sheet with about three questions on it that we want you to talk about, three separate issues that we want you to talk about as husbands and wives between now and tomorrow afternoon when we get together. So uh, we'll give you that. So it'll be just kind of a continuation of what you're doing now. Yes. The source for Miss. The Adventure of Being a Wife by Mrs. Norman Vincent Peale. You know the publisher, honey? Any Christian bookstore have it? Harper and Row. Okay. Thanks, Bob. Good. <laughs> Terrific. Always thinking. All right, let me talk to you husbands in the presence of your wives for a few minutes on what it means to love a woman. The command in the scriptures in Ephesians 5.25 is, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Now that's quite a command. It is the only place in scripture where the comparison is used between Christ's love for the church and another personal human relationship. Now, of course, he told the disciples, love one another even as I have loved you. But it's the only place in Scripture where the relationship of two individuals is supposed to be the same as Christ's relationship to the church. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ love the church, and that's a big order. That is a lifetime project, and it is something that has to be continually worked at. And one of the things that helps me understand that is you take First uh, John 3.18 in light of that. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. There's got to be shoe leather to this kind of love. It's got to be accompanied with action. Our, our wives love to hear those three little words that leave them dangling in air and are dancing on air and gasping for breath. I love you. But it's got to be demonstrated in a lot of little ways. 
In one book that we've read, it says that love is essential to both husband and wife. To be admired is essential to both husband and wife. But to be loved is more important to a woman, and to be admired is vital to a man. Now, there are three things that I aim at as an objective in this area of loving my wife every day. Three things that I aim at. One, telling her that I love her. I've done that already today. So I can cross that out. Secondly, do something nice for her. This is tough. Every day. It's an aim, it's an objective, it's a goal that I have, and I'll have to admit I don't always accomplish it. The third thing is to pay her a compliment. I've already done that today. I got up, shaved this morning, after I'd shaved, and as I was... I had gotten, uh, no, I was coming around the edge of the, you know, the deal there, and Carol had already gotten up, and she was dressed, and man, she looked like a million bucks. And there I was, in my pajamas. <laughs> and I said, honey, you're a good-looking woman. She said, thanks, came over to me, put her arms around my neck, kissed me, and I said, I love you. She said, I love you too. Well, that's a good way to start a day, huh? <laughs> Pay her a compliment. Now, guys, this is a habit that we need to work at. It needs to become a, a habit that it gets so built in that we pick up and see things that we can compliment our wives on. And a lot of little ways. And they, you know, they really warm up to it. They love it. They may not always show it every time, but boy, down in their hearts, it jumps when we say something like that. You're a good-looking woman. Or, gee, honey, your, your hair sure looks nice. Or, I like that new dress. One of probably the best opportunities that we guys have on this score is after most meals that they fix for us. Now, I, you know, I don't know all you wives, but I know that my wife is a fantastic cook. And it would be a disservice that I did to her if I sat down and ate a meal and failed to compliment her on it, say something nice about it. Now, I don't know whether you all have read this book or not, Letters to Philip or How to Treat a Woman by Charlie Shedd, but if you guys have not read this, I would strongly urge you to get a copy immediately, keep it beside your bed, and read a chapter every night. And then just keep reading it. When you finish the book, start on chapter one again and just keep reading it. Kind of have your midnight devotions or something like that until you really get the heartbeat of what he's talking about. And he, he's a fantastic writer, he's very humorous, and he, but he deals with the practical issues of marriage. Now let me read you just one little section from his book. 
here on this business of complimenting your wife. You'll, uh, you'll enjoy this, gals. He, his, his policy on this is, if you like it, say so. Just get into the habit. If you like it, speak out. Don't stand there like a dumb nut and say nothing. If you like it, say so. That's what he's, that's what he's driving at. Uh, he says, with that as a background, I give you now a few examples of compliments I have heard or used myself to good advantage. Try this one sometime. You're not a woman. You're a memorable occasion. <laughs> now that can, that can apply in a number of different kinds of situations. Or, baby, your blueberry pie is all by itself. Then he goes on, he explains that one. Do you realize, my dear boy, what a tremendous undertaking it is to serve a good meal? Planning, buying, preparing, cooking, setting the table, dishing up, and then the whole messy business in reverse when it's over. In fact, one good meal is such an accomplishment that you that for you to sit there, devour it, and then hurry back to your TV game without ever saying a good word must be a mortal sin. <laughs> of course, I'm not God, and I don't know the answer to the old argument about whether there are major and minor evils. But I've had to get up a few meals from the beginning to end, and if there is a difference, then neglecting to compliment the wife on a good dinner must be a very major error. There are some instances in which you'd be a fool to pass up a 100% return on your investment. This is one of them. And just seven words will do it. That was a great meal. Thank you. Now, there are hundreds of little situations that occur in the course of a day or a week that you can compliment your wife on, even if it's just, honey, you're terrific. It's so easy, isn't it? Now, doing something nice, that's a little harder. But if you can't think of anything else, let me give you one suggestion. That, that, you know, when you've gone through most of the day and you've blown it on that one and you just, you know, nothing comes to mind that you can do. There's no lamp fixture, to, lamp socket to fix or the faucet isn't leaking or, you know, there's, everything is taken care of and, man, you can't think of a thing. When she's getting dinner in the kitchen and, you know, there's a little drop of perspiration dropping off the end of her nose and it's hot and it's been a tough day and kind of walk up be behind her Put your arms around her waist, turn her around, draw her to you, and really lay one on her. <laughs> Don't say a word. Just walk away. Man, that will have a fantastic effect. But remember, if you like it, say so. Tell her you love her. 
try to do something nice for her every day and pay her a compliment. Now, um, this business of paying compliments, Carol referred to this in regards to a new dress. And that one can backfire on you guys if you're not careful. And you remember she mentioned that I'm honest? Well, I've learned that the hard way. How did I get so smart, huh? Well, here's how I got so smart. One evening, or one late one afternoon, we were sitting in the living room, and uh, we were going out to eat, and I was all set. I had a suit and tie on, and I was ready to go, and I was just sitting there reading. And I glanced over at Carol, and without thinking, I said, uh, Honey, are you ready to go? <laughs> she was ready to go. But the reason I said that is I didn't like the dress she had on. And I, that was kind of a nonverbal communication to her that she should go change dresses. Are you ready to go? Well, the problem was that she'd owned that dress for two years. She'd worn it a number of times. And when she bought it, I had said I liked it. When in reality, I didn't. And out slips this little blurp, you know, which she interprets as he doesn't like my dress. I've had it for two years. The problem is she had a half a dozen other dresses hanging in the closet, which I also said I had liked and which she had owned for two years. And her thought was, how many of the others doesn't he like? So when you're paying a compliment, be sure that it doesn't reach out two years later and bite you. <laughs> so be honest. Now we're talking about love and ways that we as men can demonstrate that we love our wives by actions. Let me ask you a question, guys. Are you fun to live with? Maybe you ought to ask your wife that. Are you fun to live with? Do you make life exciting? Do you think up little ways that kind of put sparkle and zip and zest in your relationship with each other? Surprises. A sudden date for lunch or going out and having a cup of coffee together or something of that nature. Developing, some, somebody has called it developing the habit of happiness. Lynn, when she was in high school, took a course in marriage, uh, home and marriage and so forth, and one of the books that she brought home one time, Carol was glancing through, and she came across this statement in the book, and this was purely from a secular point of view, but it was a good point. One of the most important characteristics of a marriageable person is the habit of happiness. It would be impossible to overestimate the value of cultivating this trait in oneself and of seeking it in a marriage partner, someone who puts sparkle in life, who knows how to live life to the hilt. Are you fun to live with? That's the question. 
Proverbs puts it this way, A cheerful heart is a good medicine, but a downcast spirit dries up the bones. 17.22 Do you have a cheerful heart? Now I realize that that's hard sometimes. But it's something we've got to work at, guys. See, the easiest thing in the world to do is be out there on that base or that campus all day long and come home for dinner. And sure, you're on time. But man, you've been dealing with people all day and you've had problems with two of of your key guys and they've got hang-ups and you've been dealing with those. And you walk in the front door and boy, the minute you walk in, you turn on the sour face because now you're home and you can relax and you can be your old rotten self. <laughs> well, that's something we've got to work on. We've got to be just the opposite. And we've got we to learn to be just the opposite. When we walk in that front door, there she is. And I would encourage your wives, you wives, to be right there. Right there at the front door with your best kiss because that's just exactly what he needs. And I think Carol's going to talk about this a little bit tomorrow. Making life exciting. Do you have a cheerful heart? Are you fun to be with at home? Have you and your wife developed the ability to be alone, just the two of you, for hours and have fun? and have a good time, nobody else around. Now, I know it's a rare occasion in a navigator home (laughs) when you find yourself home for a whole evening by yourself. I mean, Carol and I, you know, we get rocked every once in a while by that one, and Carol will say to me, Honey, do you realize there's not going to be anybody here tonight? Usually what that means is, could we go out to dinner? But see, I mean, I've lived with her for 23 years. That's a coded message. And in fact, that happened just all two or three months ago. We were sitting there, and it was late afternoon. And I walked in the living room, and she was reading or something. And she says, honey, do you, she looked up at me and smiled. Honey, do you realize that we'll be all by ourselves for dinner tonight and all evening? No one will be here. I said, oh, is that right? And I smiled, and I says, that means... You want to go out to dinner, huh? She says, yeah. (laughs) A flower, a small gift for her when you've been on a trip. Coming home for lunch sometime and saying, honey, let's go window shopping. You know, you just, you'll knock her off her pins if you do that. I hate the window shop. It, it makes my feet tired. But you know, I enjoy it with her. I enjoy it with her. 
Take her to lunch. Keep sparkle in your relationship. Surprises. Use your imagination. You know, we do this in our ministry, guys. We're always thinking. We're always trying to come up with new ideas, fresh approaches to evangelism or follow-up or a dorm meeting or this or that or the other thing. Well, boy, we need to work at the same thing in our marriage. Be creative. Let your romantic imagination run loose. You got a lot of ground to cover. The whole world is at your beck and call. And it doesn't cost much. Not when you're with her. We'd been married for 20 years, and our 21st wedding anniversary was rolling around. And man, you know, 20 wedding anniversary gifts was. I'd run out of new ideas. And, and for weeks I was thinking about this on and off. What can I get Carol for our 21st wedding anniversary? And I just, I couldn't think of anything that she really needed or wanted that, you know, of a clothes or something like that, of a personal nature. And uh, in fact, I even counseled with some guys and asked them what they thought and they, they didn't have any good ideas. Well, I was walking by a florist shop one day, and I happened to think, I wonder, how about flowers? And I thought, well, man, that's not very imaginative. Just, But I called up the next day, and I ordered 21 red roses. Now, brother, you talk about scoring. <laughs> I couldn't have done anything better. It, you know, it, it's, it still gets me points even though it was two years ago. We need to work at har as hard or harder at making life exciting in our relationship with our wives as we do at the ministry. Now that's the application to navigators. ask you a question, men, that I would like to have you discuss later with your wives. By my actions, how would my wife list these items in order of priority in my life? Now the key is by my actions. How would my wife list these items in order of priority in my life? And here, here are five items. Here they are. The ministry, my relationship to God, the navigators, my wife, my children. The ministry, my relationship to God, the navigators, my wife, my children. By my action, how would my wife list these items in order of priority in my life? Now, I know what you think you have in your own life as far as that 
priority list is concerned. I know what you think it is, but what does your wife think it is? And I would suggest that you take some time and talk about it. You may open up a can of worms. <laughs> you see, next to God, you need to communicate to your wife that she is number one in your thoughts. Next to God, she is number one in your thoughts. Now notice, I said in your thoughts. That doesn't mean that you necessarily spend more time with her than you spend in the ministry. In fact, that would be virtually an impossibility. Unless you count sleeping together eight hours a night. No, which really isn't too developing too great a relationship on a communication level. But number one in your thoughts, not in your time or the amount of thinking time that you give to her. It's the priority that she has in your thoughts, not the amount of time. For instance, just take a little incident. You know that she's going to serve dinner at 6 o'clock that night, and you're having company. You run into a jam over on the base, and you can't make it at 6. You'll be there at 6.20, and you know that you can't make it a minute before 6.20. But you know your wife is expecting company, she's expecting you, and she's going to have that dinner ready to go at 6 o'clock. Now, what do you do? to demonstrate to her that she is number one in your thoughts. Well, you pull a dime out of your pocket and you find the nearest payphone and you call her and you say, Honey, I've run into a snag over here. I can't make it home until 6.20. Can you hold dinner? She'll say, Well, honey, that's fine. I'm glad you called. Thanks. But if you don't pull that dime out of your pocket and make that phone call and you show up at 6.20, then it's going to be till midnight or one o'clock before you get it resolved after the company has left. Right? And all it takes is one little dime and about two minutes of your time <coughs> to show her that she is number one in your thoughts. Now, Shed uses a tremendous classic illustration on the negative aspect of this, and I can't pass up the opportunity to read it to you because it is so choice. And I hope none of you guys can identify with this. Let me present one of the prize illustrations of why women cut their wrists and drown themselves in bathtubs. It is also why they leave notes that read, Dear John, I have gone away with Herbert. Goodbye. <laughs> Fortunately, that didn't happen here. But some women are made of very stern stuff. This one was. She came into my study looking for all the world like she had just dedicated her life to getting even. <laughs> the reason she looked that way is that she had just dedicated her life to getting even. <laughs> she had been in an automobile accident five days before. 
Now, some women go all to pieces at times like that. Others, bless their hearts, experience a sudden rush of good judgment. So being one of the latter and a dutiful wife, as soon as she could, she phoned her husband. Now, what should a man do first when that happens? Well, of course, you're right. But that's not what he did. Instead, he asked, how much damage did it do to the car? (laughs) Well, it was practically a new Oldsmobile. Query number two was, whose fault was it? You know that we all sound unsure of ourselves part of the time, and particularly when our nerves are shattered. So since her answers did not suit him, he gave her explicit instructions. Obviously one of those guys who thinks of all the angles except the right one. His third offering was this little gem. Listen, darling, do not admit one thing. You phone the insurance company and I'll call the lawyer. You understand what I mean? She understood. Then to show you that even an idiot can do some things right, he added, just a minute and I'll give you the insurance number. (laughs) Thank you so much, she said. Aren't there any more questions? No, he replied, I think that covers it. (laughs) Oh, does it? She shouted. Well, just in case you're interested, I'm at the hospital with five broken ribs. Question. How can a man effectively say, I'm sorry, after a thing like that? Answer. He can't, effectively. Of course, I suppose in his behalf it should be noted that he knew the accident was not fatal. Dead wives do not make phone calls. Now, see, he communicated what was number one in his thoughts in that situation. He did it by the first question he asked. And in a lot of little ways, guys like this, we can, we can let our wives know, which they want to know over and over, they want to be assured of, that they're number one in our thoughts. Our time is up. Uh, Tomorrow, we will uh, 